following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Peter chapter 3, we're continuing our study in the, the Apostles' Creed, and we're considering probably the most controversial phrase of the creed, he descended into hell. I was tempted this week, Dr. Rogers has preached on this theme, I think, at least twice in the last 16 years here, and both times, very good, of course. I was tempted, I take copious notes, of course, when Dr. Rogers preaches, I was tempted to get out my notes, and I had to purposely say, no, if I get out my notes and read through them, then I'll just want to preach what he already preached once. I don't want to do the same. So I avoided that. And I thought that it would be good to approach this, this phrase of the creed from a text that is a controversial text as well, and which is often taken to support some of the ideas that are interpreted from the creed. So we're reading from 1 Peter 3 at verse 18. The context here is suffering, Christians suffering for their faith. We want to read beginning at verse 18. Hear God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we do look to you as we consider this portion of your word for your wisdom, for the help of your spirit, for your grace as we consider these things. Through Jesus we pray, amen. I want us to consider the phrase, he descended into hell, in light of this text. And I thought I would approach the subject this way. First, I wanted us to think a little bit about the history and meaning of the phrase, he descended into hell. Just looking at that historically and what others have said about that. And then, secondly, some possible interpretations, what I think is the best interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3. And then, looking at what we can absolutely affirm, Scripture says, in terms of the meaning of this phrase, he descended into hell, and some applications of that. So let us begin, first of all, with the the history and meaning of the language of this phrase, he descended into hell. The Apostles' Creed, no one knows the exact origin of it. It was early, um, in the first centuries after Christ rose from the dead. Probably it began as a baptismal confession, 
a confession that someone would say when they were baptized. The oldest extant or existing version we have of the Apostles' Creed is from 337 A.D. That's called the Old Roman form of the Creed. Within about 100 years after the date of that time, the phrase, he descended into hell, was added to the creed. Other changes in the creed took place over time, and the Latin church officially adopted the creed in 750 AD. So it's a very fluid, it wasn't fixed, but we do know that this phrase, he descended into hell, wasn't in the original forms of the creed. Over the years, theologians and um, others have wrestled with the meaning of this phrase, he descended into hell. In a letter that Augustine wrote, St. Augustine said that he believed that Christ literally descended into hell or Hades, as it might have been in, in Augustine's mind. But he admits much uncertainty about the meaning of 1 Peter 3.19 that we're going to look at here. And he, he talks about it, and he doesn't really resolve a lot about it. Thomas Aquinas, hundreds of years after that, solved the problem by saying that Christ descended to purgatory and hell. Of course, we don't believe in purgatory, but Thomas Aquinas did. And so he solved it in kind of that way. Martin Luther believed that it referred to Christ descending into hell in some way, but he didn't spell out what he meant by that. John Calvin held forth the concept that he descended into hell, pointed to Christ's suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross. In other words, Calvin did not believe that Christ necessarily descended in some way into Hades or hell. And there have been other understandings of this phrase. It's interesting that maybe some of you hear the evangelist Kenneth Copeland. He's still on television, I think. I'm not sure. But he, had, he has somewhat of a bizarre view that Jesus' descent into hell is what actually redeemed sinners, not his dying on the cross, which is serious error. So those are some of the, the views that we have of Christ's descent into hell. Part of the reason that the matter is difficult is because of the terms that are used. Dr. Rogers' new book uh, that will be out in about a year that he's finished up and is being edited and so forth goes into depth into the Old Testament background for the concept of, of an afterlife. And in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, we often read about Sheol. And the Greek word for that is Hades. Those terms were used for the place where the dead went to after this life. And it was a vague concept. If you read Old Testament, many passages speak about this, and it's not really clear. Is this a good place? Is it a bad place? Sometimes it's a good place. Sometimes it's a bad place. And so apparently it was viewed as kind of a place that uh, if you were good, it was not too bad of a place. And so when we come to a place like the Gospel of Luke, where um, in Luke 16, we see the rich man dying and being in Hades or hell, and the poor man dying and going into what was called Abraham's 
bosom or Abraham's side, it seems that they were in different part of Hades with a great chasm between them. Not so much our present New Testament sense of heaven and hell, but Hades with a great divide. The Westminster Confession of Faith in the Shorter Catechism describes Jesus' humiliation consisting of, among other things, receiving the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's from the Shorter Catechism, question 27. So the Catechism defines this descending into hell as being equivalent to continuing under the power of death. The larger catechism puts it this way, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of death and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in the words, he descended into hell. Notice the larger catechism is saying, he descended into hell is essentially equivalent to saying Christ continued under the power of death. It may say no more than simply that Christ truly died. And so there are um, many ways that we can look at this. One of the interesting things that I think is that even the English language itself is misleading in terms of the phrase because originally the English language for the word hell that word had enough elasticity and variety in what it meant to mean both Hades and hell. Hades being this Old Testament concept of the place of the dead or, or the grave, and hell as we mean the sense corresponding to eternal punishment. It's interesting that the words of the Apostles' Creed echoes Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, in which Peter states, Psalm 116, verse 10, is fulfilled, where it said, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, is a Hebrew, or the Greek is Hades, Hebrew is Sheol. But it's interesting, the King James version of that is, You will not abandon my soul to hell. And in those days, the word had that meaning. It could mean that. But since the 17th century, in English use, that sense of Hades for hell has dropped away. We don't use the word hell in that sense. It's used only to signify the state of final retribution for the godless. And that's really the New Testament word, if you follow me here, the sense that Jesus always used the Greek word Gehenna for. Gehenna, he used that for the sense that we would use the word hell. The history and meaning of this phrase is disputed. What we can say is that we would agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith that certainly, fundamentally, we can affirm the words of this phrase saying, Jesus truly died. And so we come to our text, and I'm going to take the difficult verses of our text. We're going to look especially at verses 18, 19, 20. But looking at verses 18 and 19, here we read this description of something about um, Jesus preaching to spirits prison. Let's read this again. 
And it's, it starts with the end of verse 18 where it talks about Christ being made alive in the Spirit. That could be translated with capital S by the power of the Holy Spirit, or probably it's like the ESV takes it here, small s, he was made alive in the realm of the Spirit. His resurrection was in the realm of the Spirit. He died in the flesh, but he was made alive in the realm of the Spirit. And it was a bodily resurrection as well, but the the emphasis here is on the spiritual power in which that took place. But then verse 19 begins with this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of the text, but let's just talk briefly about the options for what this means. And if you've got a study Bible with you, maybe you're looking down in the notes at the bottom of the page and seeing the options. Most study Bibles will give you four or five options for what this means. Let me review the ones that that are the most common ones for us and just relate this to this whole idea of he descended into hell. One idea is that Peter is describing Jesus, after he was buried, Jesus' soul going to the place where the fallen angels were imprisoned and proclaiming his victory over them through the cross. If you look over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, just turn a page or two over, you see where this idea is found there, at least this place where the angels are kept in chains. It says there, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the Greek word there is another Greek word, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then Peter goes on to talk about that. But Peter is saying there is a sense in which fallen angels are imprisoned in chains. Now, it's kind of a difficult concept to understand because we know that demons or fallen angels are still active on this earth. But there is the sense in which they're, they're chained, and Peter there says that they're chained until judgment is to take place. And according to this view then, Peter in 1 Peter 3 is saying after Jesus died, before he rose from, from the dead, his spirit, his soul, went to this place where the fallen angels were imprisoned, and he preached to them. And the word preached in 1 Peter 3 is not the word evangelize, euangelion, from which we get our word evangelize, preach the good news. It's just the word that means he heralded. So it doesn't necessarily mean he preached the gospel. He wouldn't have done that. He was declaring his victory. So one idea of what these verses mean is that Jesus preached to fallen angels declaring his victory. A second view is similar to the first one in that Jesus is preaching his victory. It's the same kind of message, but the spirits, according to this view, are ungodly people who had died and are in Hades. And Jesus, again, is not preaching the gospel to them. 
He's simply announcing his victory. So in this view, it's not fallen angels. It's human beings, especially those who had sinned in Noah's time, are foremost here. And he's announcing his triumph, that their condemnation was final and that he was victorious. Those are all possible views, both those views. In fact, I pulled out a sermon that I preached 30 years ago. How do you like that? I preached, I got out the notes. It was typewritten. And I thought, boy, I don't even have a typewriter anymore. Some of you kids don't even know what that is. I thought, what did I say back then 30 years ago? And I, I paged through the typewritten notes and I found myself taking view number one about the angels. I thought, well, that's what I believed back then. And I had all, marshaled all these arguments for that. I'm actually, I've changed my views in those years. How do you like that? I'm view number four now. Well, view number three is the only view that which I would say is absolutely wrong. The view of view number three is that Jesus proclaimed the gospel in Hades, offering people in Hades a second chance to be saved. And that is a view that you frequently hear in evangelicalism these days. You get this idea that there is a second chance that Jesus went and preached and offered the gospel to those who had already died. This is the most dangerous view in my mind, and clearly it's an unbiblical view since Scripture allows for no second chance of salvation after death. Verses like Hebrews 9.27 tell us this. There it says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So this whole idea of Jesus descending into hell to preach the gospel and somehow give a second chance is not in keeping with Scripture as a whole. The view that I take now is number four, and that is this. When Noah was building the ark, if you recall, it took him many years to build the ark. And when he was building the ark, we also know he was a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching righteousness. He was calling the people of his day to repentance. And what was happening is that as Noah preached, Christ, Jesus Christ, in spirit, in the realm of the spirit, was preaching through Noah to unbelievers in Noah's day who were on the earth then but are now in prison, that is, in hell. And I think this is a very likely view. In other words... Jesus Christ went and preached in the sense he went by his spirit in the days of Noah. And while Noah was preparing the ark in which eight persons were saved, that was Noah and his wife and children involved with that, Jesus Christ was preaching through Noah. The strengths of this this number fourth view are these, just to name a few of them. One is this. Notice in verse 20, it says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. It's important that we notice there's a mention here of God's patience waiting. God was patient, waiting to bring the judgment of the flood on the earth. And he was waiting for human beings to repent, if they would. God certainly knew that they weren't going to repent, but he was long-suffering, giving this opportunity to repent. And if you think of that, God would not have been waiting for fallen angels to repent. 
Never is there any hint in Scripture that fallen angels have any opportunity to repent or that there's any provision for fallen angels to be saved. And so this mention of God's patience is important. Then there's another strong argument. If you turn over to 1 Peter 4, verse 6, turn the page, 1 Peter 4, 6. Just read this one verse with me. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this verse is not referring to somehow the gospel being preached to people who are already dead, as if they're preached to them in the afterlife. What Peter is saying here is this is why the gospel was preached to those who are understood now dead. They've died, but the gospel had been preached to them, and they will have to give an account to the one in verse 5 who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, there is that sense of referring back to something that had occurred. It's like if I would say Queen Elizabeth was born in 1926. Is that correct? That was the year that she was born. Am I wrong to refer to her as Queen Elizabeth? Was she Queen Elizabeth when she was born? No. But we speak that way, right? We don't think, oh, that was wrong. You can't call her Queen Elizabeth. No, we say Queen Elizabeth was born in 1926. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 4, 6. I think that's the same sense that we have in 1 Peter 3. And then one more strength of this view number four is that the whole context of 1 Peter 3 is about faithfully bearing witness. Peter is writing to believers who are suffering and calling them to faithfully bear witness and trust in God even in the midst of living in an ungodly world and in the face of unjust suffering. The whole context here is about what happens if you're unjustly suffering. What if you're suffering for doing what is good and right? He basically says, well, if you suffer for doing evil, that's one thing. Maybe you deserve to be beaten for that. But if you're suffering unjustly, that's another thing. And he tells them to look to Christ. And so it would fit well if Peter's readers are being encouraged to take courage from God's work in Noah's time. Because Peter is saying, in the unseen spiritual realm, Christ preached through Noah to unbelievers around him. And by pointing to this example, Peter is reminding his readers of the work of Jesus Christ in them and through them as well, even in a similar setting as in Noah's time. And so the context fits very well. You can see then, just briefly looking at what I believe the sense is in 1 Peter 3, that if this view is right, and many scholars take this view, this isn't something originally with me, then by no means does this passage teach anything about Jesus actually going and preaching in some way after he died. No, this already had occurred thousands of years beforehand, before the flood of Noah's time, when Jesus, in the realm of the Spirit, was preaching through Noah to the unbelievers in that generation. It doesn't speak to the idea of he descended into hell as if Christ preached at that time. There are a couple other verses in Scripture that are commonly used. We're not going to look at those. One is in Ephesians 
that Christ descended to the, and in the King James it says, lower parts of the earth or the lower regions of the earth is another sense. And really, that's just talking about his incarnation. So there's really no other clear biblical text that demands that Jesus go somewhere, that he went somewhere and preached after he died. What then, as my third point, can we absolutely affirm about this phrase, Jesus descended into hell? Well, one of the truths is this. We can affirm that Jesus fully experienced death for our sake. Back to 1 Peter 3.18, the second half of that verse. Notice it says there, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's just one phrase in scripture that is very clear, that describes that Jesus experienced fully physical death. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit when he rose again from the dead. Jesus really died. It was a genuine death, not a simulated death. He truly rose from the dead, as we'll see next week. And think of that. Unless Jesus returns, you and I will certainly die, unless the Lord returns before that. And because Jesus fully experienced death, we can know that Jesus, in a sense, went there before us. And now, if we believe in him, we know he is with us, and we can face death knowing that when it comes, we shall not find ourselves alone, that Jesus is with us. The Puritan John Preston, when he lay dying, was asked if he feared death, and he managed to whisper out the words, no, I shall change my place, but I shall not change my company. And by that he meant Jesus, his truest friend, his dear Savior and Lord, who had been with him all his Christian life and experience, was going to still be with him. I will change my place, but not my company. Powerful answer when you are facing death. And so we know that he descended into hell means he descended into Hades. In other words, he was truly, he experienced death in its full sense. Secondly, we know that this phrase, as our Westminster Confession says, means that Jesus experienced the wrath of God in our place on the cross. Jesus experienced the wrath of God for our sins. And that's what the first half of verse 18 of 1 Peter 3 says, for Christ also suffered, some texts have the word died, could be either one, but it's most likely suffered. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In other words, Peter is saying, Jesus experienced hell on the cross for you and for me, for those who belong to him. It's like Romans chapter 5 in verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did this to bring us to God, Peter says, that he might bring us to God. Jesus descended into hell in the sense of experience what we deserved for our sins. 
to bring us to God. What a glorious truth. One of my daughters is reading Stephen Ambrose's book on D-Day. It's not a book that I would have guessed one of my daughters was going to read, but she did it in part because she wanted to understand what the World War II generation of her grandparents went through, and especially understanding World War II. And she was really amazed at Ambrose's description of what D-Day was like. And I think as a young person in our day and age, she more experiences a sense of thanksgiving and appreciation for what those soldiers went through. Many people talk about D-Day as experiencing hell, as the soldiers, as they hit the beaches and were under such attack, and so many of their patriot companions being killed. They, they went through hell, you might say, so that future generations might be free. Well, they didn't really go through hell. Jesus is the only one who went through hell. Yes, they sacrificed tremendously for those generations to come. But Jesus experienced once for all, he suffered for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so, in terms of application, two questions for us. One, do you have the assurance that you have been brought to God through Jesus Christ? What a tremendous truth this is that he might bring us to God, that Jesus might bring you and me. You, we, we were far from God, Scripture says. We were separate from, from Christ. And Jesus Christ died to bring us to God. You know, people try in all different ways in this life to get to God, to somehow do what they think they can do to build their resume and their spiritual resume in order to make them acceptable to God And here Scripture says there's only one way, and that's if Jesus Christ takes your sins and bears them for you. And so you can have access to God. And the question for you tonight is, maybe you've heard the gospel many times. Maybe you've been raised in the church. Maybe you've even looked at your church experience through the lens of trying to do something to pay your dues to God to be acceptable to Him. Tonight, I hope that you know the only way to come and to be brought near to God is to be brought near through Christ. Do you have that assurance through the death of Christ? And secondly, the context of 1 Peter 3 tells us this. In our times of suffering, we must remember the example of Christ's suffering. Christ endured unjust suffering for us that we might be saved. And Peter is here pointing to his example. In verse 17, he says, It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ suffered also for sins. He goes to the example of Christ. And again and again, Peter does that. He says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Christ suffered redemptively. None of us suffer like he did. But in a similar but lesser way, God blesses the suffering of his people. And he often uses the patient endurance of his people in the face suffering 
to bear witness, to bear testimony to others, and to serve as a witness to bring others to God. And maybe it is that the suffering that you're going through in your life right now, if you're suffering in some way, is going to be used by God as a blessing not only to you, but to others around you. Not that you, in a sense, save them, but that you point them to the true Savior. And Peter is talking about that here. And we also know that God also blesses our suffering in always using it for our good and for his glory. So in times of suffering, remember the example of the suffering of Christ. He descended into hell for you and for me that we might be brought to God. Hallelujah. Praise our God. Father, we ask that you would bring this truth home to us with a fresh sense that we would rejoice, that we would live in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would not quickly forget, that we would not lose sight of in our daily life what Jesus did. And so when suffering comes our way, that we might not curse you in any way, but that we might rather trust in you. And Father, we ask that we would live close to the cross of Christ and be meditating in our hearts on the cross of Jesus Christ daily for your glory and for your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.